And do I what, don't blame what, him. Mm-hmm. What's peculiar about Zahi is that, and I've explained this to him a dozen times, that, that what, we're, what we're doing is actually glorifying Egypt. I never said that, even in Serpent in the Sky, which was, which was the first exploration of, of this theory, which mm-hmm. was written more than 25 years ago, mm-hmm. even there, when I talk about Atlantis, I, I use it between inverted quotes because I'm not necessarily talking about a location. There may or may not have been an Atlantis as such, but that's another big complicated subject. <laughs> but rather I'm saying that the Egyptian civilization goes back thousands of years, way back when, and whether or not they were the, those people are the ancestors of the current Egyptians who were there, at that still earlier time, it doesn't matter. I personally believe this is one of the sticking points of the whole theory, actually. There's a big gap, but even that gap has pieces that are being filled in now. If you get back to talking about some of the new evidence, um, we'll get into that subject. Mm -hmm. But there seems to be a break in the timeline because I'm absolutely convinced that, and there are certain Egyptian uh, chronological tablets and, and texts that talk about this, that their own civilization stretches back that amount of time. In other words, not just 10,000 years, but somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 36,000 years. And that somehow or another, <coughs> the, the knowledge was preserved, even though they weren't building temples and pyramids and all the rest, during that whole time. When the time came to manifest it, the knowledge was all there in seed form. An analogy, for example, of, of, of the, the cycle of the seasons um, you know, the acorn just sits there all winter long, and when spring comes, it sprouts, but it doesn't sprout before that. So if you just found an acorn and you didn't know what it was, you came from Mars, let's say, okay. uh, with Steven Spielberg, <laughs> and um, you came from Mars and you saw an acorn, you say, well, this is a funny sort of a soft stone, without knowing that inside that acorn is, within a couple of hundred years, a gigantic oak tree. Mm. So... But this is this is yeah. nevertheless this is one of the one of the problems, legitimate problems actually, and it's not it's not a uh, the the quackademics like to think that that's a that's an objection that rules out the whole theory. It's not an objection, but it is it is a puzzle as to well, it's a big puzzle because Egypt springs almost full blown into being around dynastic Egypt around 3200 BC, mm-hmm. but it's all there to begin with. It takes a couple of hundred years for them to perfect the execution of the hieroglyphs and to gear up to the ability to build those incredible temples and so on. But the knowledge itself seems to have been there right from the beginning, the mathematics, the astronomy, um, all of that, all of the sciences, the medicine, all of that seems to be at its high point very early in dynastic Egyptian civilization around the so-called Pyramid Age, about 2500 B.C. Everything's complete. And from that point on, it actually degenerates. It doesn't develop. It gets more complicated, but it also gets less precise, less majestic, and more violent, and it's going downhill for a long period of time. And it's not supposed to do that because progress is supposed to go from simple beginnings to, well, yes, to more complexity, but to more advancement. Mm -hmm. Egypt certainly is not doing that because to go, for example, on my trip, it becomes very loud and clear that the Ptolemaic temples built under the the Greek kings who followed Alexander the Great are building much lesser temples and it's taking them a couple of hundred years to do it and a much finer and bigger structure would have gone up in a couple of decades under one of the new kingdom pharaohs. So there are all kinds of big and major mysteries involved in the whole subject of Egyptology that are, if acknowledged at all, basically pushed under the carpet by the by the Egyptologists and, and archaeologists because they don't conform to this notion of linear evolutionary limit, linear progress. Mm. You mentioned something about astronomy a second ago too and I, wa- I mean I know we wanted to touch on this also and I've never heard this term but I want to get I really like to get more of an insight into it and it's what we what you call archaeoastronomy. Yeah, well archaeoastronomy is the root for old, like archaeology, yeah. mm-hmm. is, the, okay. is the study of is the, is the study of the of the past or of the distant past, mm-hmm. and so archaeoastronomy is the study of ancient astronomy. 
Okay, and I mean, now, obviously that ties into a couple things, too, in regards to, well, I mean, there's a great book by Robert Boval who that I own um, that deals with the, the the notion of the great the, the, the three great pyramids on the Giza Plateau right, yeah. being a model for the, 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 the constellation of Orion. And that's also yes. one of the uh, one of the things about like Stonehenge and a lot oh, of yeah, ancient yeah. mysteries is that it all tied into uh, astronomy mm-hmm. in, in some way, shape, or that's form. That's right. You see, that's that's the theory that was first put forward. And with these things, I mean, ideas that you know about the the, the list of the world's shortest books. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that joke I've, about the world's shortest book? Yeah, I've heard oh, it before. Never heard that. Well, I mean, the, the original set of them was Who's Who in Puerto Rico and the, uh, <laughs> and uh, the Biographical Dictionary of Italian War Heroes. No, oh, my God. <laughs> there are a whole bunch of these. You know, Bill Clinton's Book of Truth. Um, <laughs> and, and there are a whole load of these. And I added a couple of my own, and one of them is maybe the shortest book of all is New Ideas in Egyptology. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, so, so, uh, but, but things move very slowly, and, and actually in, in practically any, particularly scholarly fields, they move slowly. In the sciences, they're, they're obliged to move more quickly because paradigm-busting ideas come up, and if the evidence is good enough under certain circumstances, but not others, um, they, they have to change quicker than they do in scholarly fields where the evidence it tends to be less hard. I mean, you, you can't experiment and then say, well, here's the experiment. This proves it's true. You have to do it in a kind of a roundabout fashion. This is what Shwala Dulubich did developing his symbolist school of Egyptology, of which I am certainly one of the... <laughs> of the school, I'm one of the founding members, let's say. <laughs> but but it, it, it does move, but about as quickly as Pluto in orbit. I mean, you really, it goes slowly. And it, it so, took him a long time to even break that door down or go through that door oh yeah, in, just, in the Great Pyramid. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just to get a toe in the door takes a long time. So <laughs> archaeoastronomy, in a sense, really starts with the great Victorian uh, astronomer um, Lockyer, Thomas Lockyer, I think, I forget his first name. Um, anyway, Lockyer, who was the first one to suggest that Stonehenge was an, was an astronomical instrument, and that was in the 1890s or so, and everyone laughed at him, even though he was very eminent mm-hmm. as, a, as an astronomer. And it's taken basically close to 100 years before people started taking this seriously, and now there is a whole cottage industry of archaeoastronomers, some of whom are relatively open-minded, and it's becoming clearer and clearer the, that, that a very advanced astronomy, and actually by implication astrology, existed in the very distant past because when they come to things like the procession of the equinoxes, you know what that is? I've heard the term, but I, you could probably phrase it a lot better than I can. Well, it's the, 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 it's supposed to be a wobble of the Earth that causes this, but it, it probably isn't. It's, probably, it's more likely to be the whole solar system circling around a binary star that hasn't been found yet. But mm-hmm. in any event, when let's take as, as an example, the Sphinx looks out at the, looks due east, and at the moment before the sun rises, it's looking at the, at the last stars in the constellation of Pisces. Very shortly, some think it's already happening, because there's no real line in the sky between the signs. Mm-hmm. Very soon it will be in the age of Aquarius, hence the song, the age of Aquarius, etc., etc., etc. This is a cycle, again, arguments over how long exactly this cycle is, but the usual term is that it's the canonical number of 25,920 years for the whole, for the Earth to make this whole circle of the zodiac. Now, to the ancients, this was very, very important. This was brought out in a groundbreaking book called Hamlet's Mill by two historians of science, from uh, one from uh, MIT and the other one, I forget, I think Frankfurt University in Germany, mm-hmm. uh, Giorgio de Santillan and Hertha von Deckend. And they claimed that through a careful study of the myths of all over the world, that written into those myths, some of the stuff that looks otherwise incomprehensible is actually the story of the procession of the equinoxes but told in story form rather than in astronomical terms and this has eluded the scholars over 
you know, from as long as there have been scholars in the modern sense of the last, let's say, two centuries or yeah. so. And they really started with Hamlet's Mill. They really kick-started this whole cottage industry of archaeoastronomy. So there are not a lot of people now, and of course they're all arguing with each other, <laughs> as we argue amongst ourselves, uh, the, us, us heretics. Um, <laughs> but it's becoming clearer and clearer that in the very distant past, they, the ancients, were very carefully observing the stars, probably not with telescopes, but you see, the precession is something that you really don't notice. Um, the, su the sun moves um, one degree in 72 years. So if you're sitting there watching the stars very, very carefully, it would take 70, it would take 72 years before you notice that it's moved one degree. Now, why anybody would want to notice that is a very interesting question. Or detect And it can't, it can't be because they want to know when they plant, when to plant their crops or when to catch fish. And anybody who lives on the land knows that. So there's something very important about these great astronomical cycles that they understood, and we don't. They orchestrated their entire civilization to the movements of the stars. The Egyptian temples and Stonehenge and all of those megalithic sites are carefully oriented to particular astronomical phenomena. Often it's something quite simple like the, the solstices or the equinoxes and so on. But even that's a mystery. You don't need to know when the, when the spring equinox is to know when to plant. If you live on the land, you know when things are budding and you know when animals are, are, are mating and you know all sorts of things. You don't need any calendar at all to know when to plant. Well, yeah, that's, that's one thing right there, you know. I mean, and I've always told people they wanted to study astronomy itself. So I've done a bit of studying, uh, and I mean, I'm always, like, just dumbfounded by the... And when somebody says, this is an astronomical term, that means it's big. <laughs> okay, that's usually what it means. It's, it's usually something very hard for you to get your mind around, too. Um, and like you just said, I mean, 72 years, all right, for the sun to move one degree, that's yeah. one... That, that's now that may be a day in in space or more or less or if to one degree or however it's looked at from a different point of view but that's a lifetime here on our planet that's a lifetime that's a generation yeah. that's a generation right there if you have so, it, so what you're saying is it, it, it's not important for the hunter gatherers or even the no. agricultural uh, societies to know this kind of stuff but it's not important but if that's the right. but if these artifacts are doing that if they are marking the heavens and following right. following the stars' track around in their course, there must be a, a, a deeper meaning. There's a greater that, meaning. That at this That's moment, right. I don't grasp. Mm -hmm. Well, they have to know. I don't entirely either, except by analogy. And now we get into that subject that I mentioned before of the yugas. The Hindus, the Hindus calibrate... And it's a, everything's so complicated. It takes 20 minutes to explain this, <laughs> know, to explain even this one little point. Mm -hmm. But I can't go into why the Hindu calibration is, is, is probably wrong because they count these. But they talk about a cycle, about the, the, a great year. Plato uses that term, a great year. A processional cycle um, is, is analogous to, um, let's say, the, the, um, the cycle of the seasons. And so if they understand that in the very long term, in this 26,000-year cycle, there's a summer and there's a spring and a summer and an autumn and a winter, um, which corresponds in, again, Plato talks about this, there's a golden age and a silver age and a bronze age and then an iron age, a dark age, and then it goes back up again through a bronze and a silver and a sun. So it, it follows that cycle. So if, if suddenly, if you know that somehow or another, and if you know that civilization on Earth responds to that cycle the same way that seeds and animals do to the cycle of the seasons on Earth, then it becomes of paramount importance in the long term to understand where you are within that cycle. Just as we know, I mean, you don't, if you want to grow roses in the, sun, in the winter, you can do it, but you have to have special hothouse conditions, and it's very, very difficult, and not everybody wants to do it. In the summer, you just stick a shoot in the ground, and up it, be up it grows, and it becomes a rose. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the reasons, I think, that they've got this whole story of civilization so wrong, because what was probably easy, one of the things when you're in Egypt, and you look at the pyramids, and you look at the Sphinx, one of the things that, that strikes you is that this must have been easy for them. You know, it's effortless. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a gigantic amount of effort, but they could do it easily, and we couldn't do it at all. 
And besides, we're not interested in that. You know, it's easy for us to build a Walmart. Or well, something yeah. Like <laughs> I think they fly them in, in helicopters now. Yeah, they just and drop them. Drop them on corners, and then it's a Walmart that day. I, I just really <laughs> do. I've seen them go up that fast. Well, that's the idea right yeah. there, is that this is a long-term project. I mean, yeah. if, uh, of anything, like the, the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, for example. I mean, this isn't something like you just said, just don't pop up overnight, man. It, just, it, it takes a lot more than that. Although, uh, we, we've got monuments, though, that, although they haven't lasted thousands of years, things no, that... Oh, they won't either. Well, uh, let's, let's, let me talk of one. Okay. And it, it's, the, it's my least favorite monument ever on the planet. Okay. But there's that one with the five president faces carved into a mountain. What, oh, you, Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore, Rushmore. Okay. Yeah, okay. It's my least favorite thing on the planet, okay? I have no interest in it. It's boring as heck to me. <laughs> I could care less who did it, all that kind of stuff. But it really is uh, somebody went up there and carved these things in. Mm-hmm. And That's I right, imagine they'll, they'll probably last for a while. But well, will they, maybe will a thousand years or so, yeah, but they'll, they'll weather off quite quickly. Oh, okay. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the better. yeah, for me. Very patriotic yeah. of you there, yeah. Doug. Thank you. <laughs> this, this is my least favorite. I have, I have favorite ones, but well, no, my but favorite anyway. one is, is Meteor Crater National Park. I've never been there, but yeah. that thing's got to be, de- you know, like really ancient. It's some huge asteroid plowed into the Earth there. You know? mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And that, that's that's going to last a while. But, okay, sorry about that. <laughs> All on the aside. But that's not a construction. Right, that, that was natural. Yeah, not natural. That's yeah. A natu- yeah, yeah. So that, those will be there. The Grand Canyon is going to be there for yeah, a while. Yeah, that'll be there for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are all natural things. But we're talking about a building itself, the, like the Great yeah. Pyramid. The one that we and did was the Mount Rushmore thing. That's that's the one thing I think we can say we did this thing. We affected it. You mm-hmm. know, and oh, yeah, that'll be, that'll be there longer than the Eiffel Tower, for sure. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. like I was saying, the Great Pyramid, though, that's something obviously that was built. It didn't come up overnight. It was a long-term oh. project. It was for, it was pe- the people that well, let's just say the people that designed it. They probably had this in mind, like, okay, this isn't going to happen overnight. This is going to be a long-term project we have here. These are forward-thinking people. These are not people that think in front of their noses. Basically, they think a lot farther. But they have the ability to do it. They they could because th- even now I see special after special after special about you know did they. Did they float these stones and then just drag them a couple hundred yards, or did they, you know, did they actually, you know, carve them there, or did they, you know, what did they do? You yeah. know, how did they do it? Nobody really has a definitive answer yet. Well, that that part's rel- relatively simple. The the tough bit is getting them up into place, and that and nobody has really solved. Even <clears throat> Zahi acknowledges that. They think it's done with ramps and levers and so on, but he, even he will acknowledge and say, "Well, we don't really know, mm-hmm. and we don't." But more important, actually, is the reason why they did it. Yeah. That's, that's mm-hmm. the big mystery. Well, you right. see, Egypt, and we haven't talked about the spiritual side of this yet at all. Egypt is a one-issue civilization. They're interested in one thing, and that one thing is, is a matter of derision to most of our rationalist academics today, and that is the potential immortality of the soul. Mm-hmm. Everything in Egypt, everything that you go visit that's still left, is in one way or another directed toward the potential immortality of the soul, what they call eternal life. And this always went... I mean, the Egyptologists will acknowledge that, but they'll sort of say, well, yes, immortality, wink, wink, nod, nod. They don't take this seriously. <laughs> the, the, uh, the Egyptians... The, <laughs> the, the Egyptians were focused in on this and whenever they talk about Egyptian knowledge or they talk about Egyptian doctrine it's always well the Egyptians believed this and the Egyptians believed that and this is true they believed it but it never ever occurs to them that hey maybe they actually knew and it's we who believe maybe they knew and my absolute conviction otherwise I wouldn't be spending 40 years of my life doing this (laughs) is that they really did know and that these temples and tombs and pyramids in a different way. That's the pyramids are a big mystery, actually, because they're certainly not. They're probably not tombs at all, and they're certainly not just tombs for megalomaniac pharaohs. Yeah. But the temples, the temples are a little bit easier to <coughs> to um, explain, at any rate. And, mm-hmm. and um, the, the explanation for it is, is from my point of view, is is uh, is very solid, and that these. These temples are consecrated to triads, for the most part, triads of what are called the gods. And so the gods, as soon as you say the gods, that's wink, wink, nod, nod, too, <laughs> in academia. But as soon as the gods are recognized as 
natural principles that which makes the whole universe function and each of those each of those temples associated with those particular gods who are in turn associated with particular numbers the reason for that is complicated not for our hour and a half either <laughs> but from those numbers those numbers let's say the interplay of those numbers generate specific geometries harmonies and proportions and when those are written into the entire construction of these enormous and extraordinary structures effectively what you have is stone music just as music makes its effect or produces its effect through volume, frequency, harmonies, etc., 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 tonalities and all of the rest, and it produces an emotional effect, particularly if the composer knows what he's doing, mm-hmm. and a different effect depending upon which composer. So these temples produce their effect, except that the, except that it, it, we don't hear it as music. We, it's, it's visual music. Goethe, the great German poet, once called architecture frozen music. And this is precisely true. It's not just poetically true. It's mm-hmm. precisely true. So when you go into a temple that's, let's say, uh, dedicated or consecrated to a god, a principle called Amon, when you're in there, you, particularly if you're there early in the morning before the crowds hit, mm-hmm. you, and you get a hit out of it because you, you do. Um, what's happening is that what's happening is that you're having let's say you're having Amon awareness invoked or provoked within you you're resonating to those frequencies Mm -hmm. when you go to a Horus temple that's a different resonance you go to a Hathor temple that's still another resonance and this is what sacred architecture is all about and this is what actually what ancient art and architecture was all about it was to to connect you to divine consciousness put it that way and that's what a civilization is supposed to do. Art is not supposed to be just self-expression, or in certain cases, nya nya nya. Although sometimes, sometimes that in a lunatic society like ours, even that has or can have a medicinal effect. Mm-hmm. At least you understand the chaos better when somebody is orchestrating it for you. Mm-hmm. But ancient art had a, had an entirely different purpose, and the academics will acknowledge that, except that they think the, the purpose is superstitious. And it's the other way around. It's we who are superstitious and who think in terms of capitalism and democracy and patriotism and all this rubbish. <laughs> well, I, I, I've I been to certain places that have had effects on me. That's right. So I know what you're talking about. Now, I've not been to ancient Egypt, or Egypt, even in modern days, but mm, yeah. I guess it would be a little difficult right now. Time machine's down right now, machine. yeah. yeah. Mm. So, But I haven't been to any of those kinds of places. But I've been to places that had effect on me, places of oh, historical yeah. per, historical things. Sure. And you, Gettysburg, yeah. um, it's not so much the architecture as what happened, what happened there. there. I mean, I was in the middle of a field, right? But I knew the history of the field. I'm like, just the, the weight of it. Just you like, probably would have felt it even if you didn't know the history. Right. Because well, that's the it's, thing. It's, I, because it's, Im, it's imbued. In the place. Things, it's imbued. The, it's, the soul of the place is the soul of this terrible battle that took place. And I think if I were just, you know, wandering through, and I, I would have felt that the weight of the years on me. And, and sure. so I know the power of places. And yeah. so, so I, And I think if you can build something that spectacular... However, you can do it, you know, like the Sphinx or the temples or the the pyramids, mm-hmm. and in, you know, and basically for, force the uh, you know the the energies of the area, you know, and the and and if you've got a in, if you're in tune with that kind of thing, you can make quite a place. Well, here's an idea right. too, John. Here's the idea too, and I've talked to people about this a lot of times. I want you to. This is the only time I'm going to put you on this spot, but I want you to validate this with me and tell me if I'm on the right path. Because yeah. Doug and myself have talked about this time and time again. Careful at the two-edged sword. He could say, oh, you're full of it. <laughs> <laughs> I've had guests I could, tell me I, that. I, I, if I am, I am. I want to be corrected. Well, let's find okay. out. So let's just take the Great Pyramid, for example. And we're talking about this weight, this, this, this piece of architecture that's supposed to have an effect on you. And it ties in also because... It changed your life. It changed my life, yeah. And I, you haven't even been there yet. No, I haven't. So it's, that, it's that's got a given. That, that's, on you, that's, yeah. that's on the outskirts of this. But <laughs> you have this major construction job that you want to commission. And like you said, megalomani- megalomaniac 
pharaohs who want to have these giant monuments done to them. Um, and like we talked about earlier, there's this idea um, that your heart's in this work. And I've always thought the challenge to doing something like this will not necessarily be the work, the, the, the laborious work itself. It's having your heart in it. If your heart's in it, you're going to do anything. And that's what that's I've right. always thought the number one weapon, I don't want to say weapon in a negative sense, was with commissioning a job of this sort, was that, okay, you know, we'll feed you well. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> cool. Right? No, it's For like, okay, family, look, we are building this because we want to raise our pharaoh to the heavens. This is a, and I know people have referred to the pyramids as a stairway to heaven of some sorts. Um, by doing this job, by being part of this project with us, you will also be a part of this also. You will go to heaven too. And that right there, that idea right there, which obviously is, that's going to put your heart right in the work. I'm guaranteed, you know, life, you know, life everlasting if I help out with this job. And right there, that idea, that's what I've always thought was the key to building the pyramids. All well, theories that's one aside. Of the keys. Yeah, I mean, that's, cer- that's certainly one of the keys mm-hmm. because the pharaoh actually is always painted as this, as this megalomaniac despot who rules over, but who rules, you know, who, who lords it over the poor slaves and and workers that are underneath him, and they don't get a chance, and he's the big shot, and blah blah blah. Yeah. But that's modern thinking applied exactly. Yeah. To a to a, to a doctrine that that is is not understood or appreciated. But generally, we have enough organizations on Earth where you can demonstrate that. I mean, for example, if you're a baseball team or a good restaurant, if it's well run, the dishwashers are participating in whatever it is that the head chef is doing. Mm-hmm. And if it's a well-run restaurant, they're the go- and especially if it's a, a really well-run restaurant, and the dishwashers, if they you know can can become chefs in their own right, if they pay their dues and do their own studies Mm -hmm. that's how hierarchies work Mm -hmm. so that anybody who's involved in that anybody who's involved in a you know in a good football team or a good baseball team Mm -hmm. understand exactly that principle everybody involved participates in the in let's say the consciousness of the enterprise and when the consciousness of the enterprise is not just a good restaurant or a a good football team and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that Mm -hmm. but if it is if if the doctrine is the doctrine is the potential immortality of the soul, then everybody is working for, let's say, is, is working to honor the gods and, in fact, to become them. Mm-hmm. Because that's the, that's the whole idea of the ancient Egyptian metaphysical doctrine and all of the other metaphysical doctrines, Chinese, Indian, mm-hmm. probably Mesoamerican as well. We don't know that much about them. Mm-hmm. Or the traditional shamanic societies. Well, that's quite an incentive plan right there when you think about it, though, John. That's, what? that's quite an incentive plan right there. That's, that's what I'm well, saying. Well, it is. I mean, it's I like, mean, hey. In theory, in theory, that's what the Western religions are supposed to be about, but mm-hmm. you never know it listening to these clowns talking about telling everybody what to do. Mm-hmm. But, but, I mean, from, you know, from Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and some <laughs> of these other wackos, you, you wouldn't know that that's what their religion was originally based upon. That's but true. In mm-hmm. fact... In fact, Christianity itself, and there's a, a huge voluminous literature on this, comes right out of Egypt. Um, and in its best form, um, the, 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 the Christianity of a Meister Eckhart, or a, most recently a Thomas Merton, is a kind of remedial Egypt. It's, it's Egypt for dummies. Um, the faith and the devotion is there at its best. Hence, you have those cathed- wonderful cathedrals in Europe. But what's been lost, unfortunately, is the science. In mm-hmm. Egypt, and particularly really old Egypt, the science and the art and the philosophy and the science were one inextricable fusion. They were a single thing, and to us that's almost inconceivable. These disciplines often, people who are philosophers can't talk to artists, and artists can't talk to um, religious people, and they can't talk to the scientists, and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. It's all separated and fragmented and so on. In Egypt it wasn't. And that, and that was everybody working. They everybody had their place, but they all knew the greater purpose of the whole thing. Well, yeah. and they could move with, um, until Egypt degenerated. They could they could move within it as well. Yeah, you couldn't up. become okay. pharaoh. You couldn't keep become pharaoh, but you could become you could become high priest. You could become top architect. You could become mm-hmm. master of this and you know vizier of the vineyards <laughs> and all that sort of thing. You could move within it. Actually, for a few years within the within the Catholic Church. You could do that. You could do that too. You couldn't become not for long, a couple of centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you couldn't become 
you couldn't become king, but you could become pope. Mm-hmm. And that's and the, now that's almost gone. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. Yeah, Malachi says that. So Let's take a quick right. break. I think we're all overloaded here, John. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you. Let's take a quick break here. Kind of come down for a second. Um, a lot more to cover here. I am, okay. I got to skedaddle myself, but Doug and Will are still going to be here to take yeah. care of business. I'm out of okay. here. Thank you, John. I will talk to you soon. I'll, I will get through with each other this week. And thanks again for coming on the show. I'm out of here. Let's take a break, Will. But hit, stick hit. around yeah. because um, I'm Doug and I'll be right back yeah. with more from uh, Mr. West. The man's going to hold the boat up. Yeah. How, how long is that break? It'll be four minutes. Oh, no, no, okay. Two? Two minutes. Okay. We'll be okay. right back. We'll be right back. <laughs> All right. Okay. You know, before the break, I had said, okay, two minutes is like an eternity if you're a if you're a fish fly. Oh, <laughs> 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 um, well, the, um, the adult stage only lasts for twenty four to forty eight hours. Exactly, exactly. So two minutes is is uh, well, it's a, a significant portion of your life if you're a fish fly. But we're not fish flies; we're humans. And this is indeed ghostly talk. I'm Doug. And Will's pouring. I'm Will. Ah, yeah, thank I'm you. Here. Yes. And uh, we lost Scott L. because he had to go. Uh, John West will be back. Hopefully, he'll pop on the phone in, in another moment. I'm here. Oh, you're here. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, I did want to say this is the final um, episode of Ghostly Talk that's broadcast from the Haunted Basement Studios in Fraser, Michigan. Next uh, or on Wednesday, when we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Shock, uh, is going to be the first one from uh, Warren. So we'll be in Warren, Michigan. Warren Reinery. It's the one city over from. <laughs> we're actually going to be just like two miles down the road. Um, so that'll be an exciting show. Where will there be any winos at the winery? There's only two that I know of. <laughs> so we'll be okay. Um, John. Yes. It it's th- this is indeed information overload, but there is a couple things that he <laughs> <It's always good. laughs> you should be on one of the trips that goes on for oh, fourteen days. I can imagine you you do that. You, you organize trips, don't you? Yeah, that's where my principal living has 
come from the last 25 years. I, I'm living, living proof that fame and fortune do not necessarily go together. <laughs> <laughs> since, since 9-11... We're, we're following in your shoes. So. <laughs> it's been pretty thin. Yeah. Well, we're following in your shoes. Uh. Yeah, but you're younger. <laughs> we're, I don't know. No, I'm not much younger. But what, uh, what do you do on these trips? Cause, uh, tell me about them. What, well, what if we, I wanted to go? Well, you look on my website, you'll see the you'll see the itinerary, and basically, we it's it's a tour. It's 14 days. Actually, I've just reduced the. We're 18 days, but the Americans, because of this stupid country, you know, people only have two weeks off. Uh, the Europeans have no problem, but most of my because I'm American and my base is here, mm -hmm. the 18-day trips were were hard to fill up because well, partly because of 9/11, but also partly because they're too long and people can't get away unless they're retired or super rich or self-employed or whatever. So I've cut them to 14 days, which actually it's a pretty good deal because you actually see about 80, 80% 80 or so of what you would otherwise see. There are a couple of misses that are regrettable, but can't be helped. And we go through Egypt starting at the crack of dawn to get to the temples and get to places before the crowds hit because there are big crowds there now. And... Uh, and we go through and explain everything, basically what we were talking about for the last hour or so, except it's quite a few hours a day, but with lots of breaks in between. And it's a good time, and it's an introduction to what a civilization really should be like. We think we're a civilization. We're, I mean, what, I, what most people call progress, I call shiny barbarism. And uh, after two weeks in Egypt, I tell you, you come back, you come back changed, and no matter how much you talk, and even the videos, and now we've got this new DVD series out called Magical Egypt, um, a symbolist tour, it's a nine-part series with maybe some more being added to it. At the moment, it's just about available. We had a lot of trouble with distribution and things like that. But even no matter how well you do it um, on radio or in books or, or on video, where it's, of course, visual, it's a, it's a far cry from actually being there. And I, mm -hmm. I often say that that um, you know Egypt or sacred sacred architecture is is sort of like sex. You can read all about it and even <laughs> look see a lot about it, but until you've actually experienced, you don't understand what it's about. So Egypt is like that, and it's a an in-depth introduction to Egypt, seen through symbolist eyes, but with plenty of time to look at the alternative theories and even you know at the at the academic theories as well. I mean, I always present the other side when we're going through. And that's what we do, and they're pretty reasonable for what's involved. How um, how, how many times do you, do you go? Once a year? Is it one big field know, trip a I, year? I, I try to do them about four times a year. Okay, tell you what. So the next one's in October. I'll tell you uh, what. If anybody listening to Ghostly Talk goes on one of these things, okay, if they go to to Egypt and they do the the two week uh, tour with you, I want to bring them on Ghostly Talk. Sure. And talk obviously. with them about their experience. Yeah, well, um, I, I usually know. I say where on the registration form it says, where did you hear about the tour? And actually, you know, we should give out my oh, loud and clear, my, my website yes. and uh, and my email. The uh, the website is www.jawest.net, not mm -hmm. .com, .net. Okay. And for reasons that are too complicated to go into here. <laughs> and my... Uh, Email is my initials, J-A-W-Sphinx, S-P-H-I-N-X, at AOL.com. So anybody who's listening and wants to get in touch and learn about, hear about a trip or so on, can go either to the website or email me direct, and we'll discuss it. Because that sounds absolutely fascinating. It's the kind of thing that I would love to do sometime in my life, not this October. You see, in our business as ghost hunters, right, and yes. and paranormal uh, broadcasters, October is a pretty hot month for us. Is it? <laughs> yeah. That's ghost, that's ghost season? For some reason, that's ghost season, yeah. Really? So, so we, uh, you know, because of the whole Halloween thing, right? So oh, right, yeah. Yeah, sure. so that's when people start thinking about them. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that's a busy time for us. But uh, but if anybody does go on that, uh, any of them, if they go any time within the next year or so, uh, I want to bring them on the show and have them talk about their experience on your trip. Sure. Because Absolutely. I think that would be phenomenal. And I, I know it would tickle Scott L., 
in every place that he's ticklish because he, he oh god okay that's a bad image <laughs> but it it really does get him he he loves the the Egyptology everything about Egypt he's like um, just totally into it and and I know that. Uh, that he would love to hear from anyone who goes on oh. your trip. So, so that that's an open offer to anybody, any listener of Ghostly Talk. Uh, uh, you you go on one of these trips with Mr. West, and you get and interviewed for free. Yeah, and you get interviewed for free. Well, <laughs> and we get content, and in in return, we get content for free, which is pretty cool. <laughs> so I, I think right. it's a win-win situation. When right. uh, we were talking about. Um, of course, the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid in Egypt and everything like that. But one thing gets me. Here's here's what I want to set up and see see what you have to say about it. Because we were also complaining about uh, science and how the science of archaeology and pretty much uh, all science uh, is a little bit single-minded. You know, each individual scientist is fairly single-minded about their particular field. What if things had developed a little bit differently? I'm a, I, I'm I'm pretty well read in in a little bit more esoteric things than Egyptology and stuff like that. My the stuff that I study is more uh, really far out there. One of my favorite things is uh, Edgar Casey. Yeah. And he describes uh, Atlantis and Lemuria, of course, in his in his life readings. Right. And I know you're probably thinking, uh oh, crackpot. But no, 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 no. Oh, wrong. good, <laughs> good, good, good. Well, actually, with Casey, unfortunately, his his medical work seems to be absolutely spot on, as <laughs> well authenticated, and so on. Unfortunately, most of the of the stuff that he talks about with Atlantis and Lemuria, Lemuria with with Egypt, when he talks about Egypt, mm-hmm. it just doesn't it doesn't match up to anyway what I know of of symbolist Egypt. And when he talks about Atlantis and Lemuria, Lemuria would make a great film uh, script. Mm-hmm. But again, you can't you can't find any evidence for it. So for me, I just leave it alone. I don't necessarily disbelieve it. But having elected to play on this particular playing field, um, I can only deal with basically I can only deal with what's either directly or indirectly evident. Right. But yeah, I think and Casey's a remarkable man. I agree. His uh, his his uh, medical his medical readings were just. Absolutely incredible, and they did yeah, so and much well help. And, and they're also attested, and and they're they followed up through the years with with the cases, and and that yeah. has that's a body of evidence in and of itself. He did do yeah, these other he did these other kinds of readings called life readings, and in those he talks about Atlantis, Lemuria, and, and a whole bunch of other you know far out stuff. One of the things that he talks about is a crystal, a central crystal in. Um, Atlantis that provided power and communications or something like that to the entire rest of the continent. Now, Mm -hmm. let's take aside the Atlantis thing. Let's take aside the life reading thing and and he doesn't have all that great of a a record when it comes to life readings. But let's take all that aside and just say, okay, what if our science had started out a little bit differently? What if we started with some kind of amazing crystal that could provide communicate instant communications and power to anywhere in the in the country or the or through maybe relay systems the world something like that. If we started with some thing that we did not, uh, we may or may not understand it, but I mean something that we can't grasp right now, such as a power distribution system for free power. Okay, if we started with that and then grew from there, our science would be completely 100% different. No, even if it started from a different mindset, and it it almost did in the 17th century, where the where the Hermeticists, the the Rosicrucians and the Kabbalists and the astrologers and the magicians wielded considerable sway, mm-hmm. and our our science was just getting started. Had that had that camp won, it wouldn't be the the rationalist. I mean, the technology might be as sophisticated as it is now, and it is certainly sophisticated, but it would have a completely different mindset and soul set and heart set, you might say. But it didn't, so <laughs> there's, there's no point speculating, from my point of view, anyway, but I think it's fun. what it might have been. Well, I, I agree, but I think it's fun. I, I think it's fun to speculate, because there's there's a, a mini point here coming, at, coming up. Okay. Um, I think that had we had a different 
set of scientific, if we started from a different basis or had a different mindset, even if it was just, okay, from the old alchemists, right? The old alchemists were revered, you know, we're going to turn lead into gold or what, what have you, okay? The, but they, there you go. Okay, if you're going to do that for me, here's all the resources you need, okay? I mean, it was a completely different time. It was a completely different mindset. If you have, um, if you had that going on, why wouldn't you be able to move 100-ton rocks? Well, you might be, but it didn't go that way. So, it's, as you said, it's speculation and it's fun, but... It didn't go that yeah. way this time. My point well, is, uh, 10,000 years ago, it may have been, right? Well, yeah. That's the, um, that's the one thread that I, could, that I can think of that, that makes me think, wow, this really could have happened. We just don't have enough evidence of it right now. Right. Well, um, you mean in the past it could have happened? Right, in the past it could have oh, happened. Oh yeah, well it could have, it could have, but but um, until you until you somehow or another demonstrate it, you can't you can't use it as as scholarship in any way, shape, or form. It remains speculation, and there's no particular reason, or there's no commanding reason why we couldn't go from the science that we now have to let's say a far more advanced and humane and spiritual science. And in fact, if you're familiar enough with the field, there are certain indications that it could go that way, mm -hmm. but it isn't at the moment. I mean, they're busy building bigger and better bombs. Right. I mean, the, the vast num the vast majority of 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 our scientists and technologists are involved in stuff that is, if not outright destructive, uh, then uh, then frivolous. I mean, a lot of energy and intelligence goes into producing, and technology goes into producing the bobblehead doll. But who needs it? <laughs> I guess a lot of cars need them. <laughs> That's what I Well, mean. yeah. I mean, it would, wouldn't work as well with cars. <laughs> your Porsche wouldn't be the same without your bobblehead. Right. If you don't have your bobblehead in your car, I don't know what you're going to do. But, right. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. I, I just sometimes I, I, I get frustrated by that. I get frustrated well. by how things could be different. Although I have to say I'm pretty happy with things the way they are because I've got, you know, the computer and the Internet. Well, but um, this is true. <laughs> without that, I me, don't know what I'd be doing. Me, me too. Um, <laughs> so there's a certain technology. Let's say technology is in and of itself neutral. It's what you use it for. Right. So it's great to have this. You know, I, even I would rather go to a 21st century dentist than a 21st dynasty dentist. <laughs> okay, um, I got you. But, got me there. I, I me too. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's an awful lot of. You know, the, the 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 lunacy of these of, of a consumerist society that's at best frivolous and at more common worst absolutely destructive to anything that actually really counts in our lives. And this is where Egypt is so interesting as a as a model because even though it was degenerating over time, probably because back to the conversation we were having before of the Yuga yep. cycle and the Golden Age and the Bronze Age, we were moving from a more advanced age to a more degenerate one, which hit rock bottom in Europe, certainly during the Dark Ages in the 6th and 7th centuries, and since then has been moving gradually forward, and in the last couple of years, couple of centuries, very swiftly forward in a certain way, but in that certain way is only scientific and technological, not spiritual or philosophical or artistic, um, and most of that, as I just said, is unfortunately, either directed toward destructive goals or more, or almost equally commonly at, um, at frivolous goals. I mean, who the hell needs Disneyland? <laughs> no, or, or Hollywood, for that matter. Well, a lot There's, of people uh, use both of them. So <laughs> I know. That's a sign that we're still pretty degenerate. We're degenerating uh, as we speak. We're but, still degenerate. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, what if... Um, all right. Well, that that's neither here nor there. And you see, the Egypt that I'm talking about, I mean, I, I do tend to come down pretty hard on the Egyptologist, but without this couple of centuries of meticulous, even if, if not very enlightened work, but very hard and meticulous work, without the data that they've collected, Shrala de Lubitsch would never have been able to come up with his, his symbolist interpretation of Egypt, and me, as a Shrala follower, would never have been able to do Without geology, we'd never have been able to do this work on the Sphinx. 
Would Egypt so, at one point, when the Sphinx was being created and the and the, the Great Pyramid, would you have described that as a utopia of some kind? Well, it's it's impossible to say, but if you lend some credence to the 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 myths that are universal around the world, everybody. I mean, there's almost no society that doesn't have a myth that in, that talks about a golden age and the destruction either by cataclysm or by the vengeance of the of the gods who are raining down destruction upon um, errant humanity. If you take as as a possibility, you don't have to take it as a given, and you shouldn't because the evidence isn't mm-hmm. that clear. But if you take it as a possibility that maybe they know what they're talking about, then that's exactly what they're talking about. A, a golden age is a utopia where people are, let's say, the, the, the majority of people. This isn't to say that there aren't, you know, there aren't bad guys out there and murders and all the rest of it, but maybe not. And these all, these legends talk about an age where people honored the gods and however you take that to mean, but where people were actually lots of them anyway, involved in trying to transform their consciousness into its potential, which is, again, back to Egypt, the immortality of the soul or eternal life. To Of course, the body is going to die, but the lesson in Egypt, and in fact in all of the religions, even those that are around today, um, however it's misused and misunderstood, the objective is to acquire a level of consciousness that we don't have naturally. We have to work for it. Mm-hmm. Just as the acorn, if you just leave it on a rock, is never going to sprout and become a and become a uh, an oak tree. It's got to be in fertile ground under the right conditions and so on. And I completely so, love that analogy because if I were to look at, an, at a at a huge oak tree, I would never have pictured an acorn as being its beginning. You know, I mean, that's right. just take one or the other, you don't have a complete picture. You take them both, that's and right. you're like, whoa, okay, here we go. Here's yeah, if you didn't know that, you would you would never suspect it. Mm-hmm. So we're in a, a somewhat similar position, and a, a golden age, let's say, is a is an age in which an awful lot of acorns, um, of course, they're self developing. That it doesn't happen naturally. This is the point of of a society based upon those principles. You have to work for it. It doesn't just happen naturally, but just as things grow easily under the right conditions and very difficult with great difficulty if at all in difficult in other conditions so you know we're in without even trying to guess at what stage of the cycle we're at but it's a bit like trying to plant the oak tree and you know turn the oak tree into a seedling in January well this is tough (laughs) well even even that though you know our our society today is the fast food society is the what? The fast food society. Oh yeah well this is another symptom of our degeneracy so even if you were to throw the 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 the, the acorn in a, in a little pot of soil with all the nutrients it needs and stuff, ten minutes later it hasn't developed into an oak tree. So you're like, okay, well, that failed. Next. <laughs> well, that's right. Where am I going to get my funding right. for next well, year? That's, exactly. That's right. Exactly so. <clears throat> kind of sad, I mean, this is, this is, this is, These things are a lot of work, and they were always a lot of work, but they're even more work now because everything is so fragmented and distracted and chaotic and vicious and violent and all the rest of it. What's it going to take? What? What's it going to take well, fi- to find out the answers? Well, the answers are the answers are actually there. You just have to do. You just have to apply them, mm-hmm. and and for things to change, a lot of people have to apply them. And at the moment, most people don't even know about them. The the, the whole New Age movement, for example, is. Is, is a part of this, but most of the new ages uh, that I know don't want to do that kind of inner work. So it's, it's just in their heads, and it sounds nice, and it makes them feel good, and all the rest of it. But it's not the same as a discipline. And everybody—I mean, this is quite clear. It's a—it's a very strange thing. Everybody knows that you want to be a virtuoso violinist, or you want to play major league baseball. You have to put all your time into that one aim. So if your—if your aim is, let's say, a spiritual one. This is not something that you do on weekends in a seminar. It's something that you have to do all the time and in the right way. And this is what actually, before the the, the, the current religions became as totally degenerate as they are now, this is what the monasteries were for. Before they, you know, for a couple of hundred, sometimes for a hundred years or so, they were really places of spiritual instruction. And then, you know, within a hundred years or so, 
Integrity Hall became hotbeds of you know, the priests jumping on the choir boys and all the rest. <laughs> <laughs> that's recent, uh, that, yeah. That's, that's not the fault of their of their founders, who were often genuinely advanced and enlightened and civilized human beings. Right. I'm uh, I'm guilty of it myself. I have to admit, uh, because and and I've said this before on other shows. I, I'm I'm jealous and, uh, of and uh, I admire folks who are experts of something. Uh, it started with when, when we had on um, uh, the Bell Witch Expert. Uh, he had, he'd gone in, Patrick F- Pat Fitzhugh, and he had gone in and he studied the Bell Witch. It's a, it's a legend uh, out of Tennessee, I think. Yeah, out of Adams, Tennessee. And uh, just absolutely found everything there is to know. I mean, he, he uncovered things. He started symposiums. He started everything. He, he just, like, really became an expert on it. And I'm, I'm very, I admire that because my life hasn't taken me to that point where I, I can be an expert on something. I have to... I have to do, uh, you know, I, I went into the, the ghost hunting thing and and, uh, uh, and then, of course, uh, ghostly talk, which has become more than talk about just ghosts. It's become talk about everything, uh, you know, a, a lot of different things. But uh, so I get little bits and pieces every week is what I get. So I'm, I'm jealous of, of, of the likes of you and Pat Fitzhugh and, and folks who've become experts on things because I'm, <laughs> I'm not there yet in my life path. No, you can, be, you, you can be an expert and it's still just external. The, the, the internal work is a, is a different kind of thing um, altogether. And, I mean, you can do the internal work no matter what you, can do, what you do. You can do the internal work if you work in a factory. And, in fact, in, in, in Islam... Um, the Sufi sects of, of Islam do exactly that. For example, these are these woven carpets are consciousness-raising exercises, and the I mean the, the, the few modern I don't know if you've ever heard of, of Gurdjieff, um, who's another remarkable character, but that would be another hour and a half. The, <laughs> the trick is the, the trick is to to apply these that kind of work, that sort of inner work of dealing with your own emotions and your own thoughts and all that sort of stuff. And that you can do anywhere. You can do it you can do it whatever your job is, you can do it the whole idea of it actually, particularly in this in the Gurdjieff formulation of it, is that whatever you do in life, that's the material that you work with. But you have to work with it in a certain way. Just as I mean in, in the arts it's a it's a little bit different. An academic expert is pure for the most part is purely intellectual and it doesn't have an awful awful lot of emotional content. But a virtuoso violinist, um, by the very nature of what he does, has to have a connection to other things. And in sport, I mean, those guys are are highly trained, and you hear you know you hear about runners high and so forth. I mm-hmm. mean, they they can they can zone in on something that's much bigger than the sport that they're playing. So it, it's not it's not it's really more a question of deciding that that's what you really want and doing well, it. Well, that's very encouraging. John Allen West. Uh, we have John to, Anthony well, West. I'm, why did I say Allen? I don't know. I have absolutely no clue. All right. Because you know what's really interesting about that? Uh, well, my own middle name is Anthony. Ah. And, and, and I... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that that was absolutely unforgivable of of me. I, I apologize. No, you're forgiven. I, I was. <laughs> I have so many things scribbled on my paper. But uh, <laughs> nobody will miss that. I'll get emails. John Anthony West. <laughs> I will. I'll get emails. John Anthony West. We have to close the show. Thank you so very very much. But I want you to hang on the line for just a sec because I want to I want to talk with you briefly uh, okay. right after I close the show. Okay? Yes. Uh, thank you for being on. Uh, your website, of course, is jawest.net. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's uh, what? J-A-W-Sphinx at A-O-L. That's right. at AOL.com is the email address. Of course, everything's available up on his website. Or if you go to ghostlytalk.com, you're linked into our website as well. So that, that'll get them there. Uh, thank okay, you so Josh. much for being on Ghostly Talk. Hang on for one sec. Okay? okay. Just one sec. Uh, everybody, I've got to close the show because I've got to make way for what's coming up next on Pioneer. Pioneer Radio Networks is, of course, pioneer.rolo, R-O-L-O.net. Our own website is uh, ghostlytalk.com. And, uh, of course, special bonus show coming up on Wednesday is... Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not going to... I I know... It's Dr. Robert Schock, okay? Right. But I'm not going to 
put anything else out there, I'm just going to close the show because evidently my mind is just all a flutter. <laughs> so I'm just going to say <laughs> Dr. Robert Schock is coming up. Bonus show on Wednesday, the first uh, the first ghostly talk from the Warren Winery. Uh, this is the last one from the Haunted Basement Studios. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, I, I, hope, uh, I hope someone goes on these trips because I know I want to hear about it, and you're welcome to come on Ghostly Talk if you go on a trip with, with John West. So thank you for listening. We'll see you Wednesday. I need to go someplace where a man can think.